Hey, welcome. We're delighted to have you here. Um, the one thing about uh, World Bank IMF weekend is that the traffic just becomes impossible. You know, so I, I do want to say thank you to all of you for coming here on time. And but we've got a bunch of colleagues that haven't yet arrived. So we'll uh, we'll but it's being broadcast and we we're recording it. So it's going to be just fine. So uh, thank you. Before we when we have events like this with outside groups. Uh, we always make a little safety announcement. Uh, you know, Mike Green is going to be responsible for your safety. Uh, he's going to be here through the program. If we hear a voice that says to leave, uh, please follow his instructions. We'll go out through the door we came in. Uh, there's an exit right uh, opposite. We'll take a left turn and then go out to the street level. We'll go around uh, and meet over at National Geographic and do a head count, make sure everybody's safe. So um, nothing's going to happen, but we always we always start with this little bit of an announcement. Um, I'm very I'm very grateful that we can have a good friend, you know, Maeda-san, come and share with us the uh, the very important work he's doing at JBEC. Um, it's a much larger significance than, uh, than people realize because at a time when America is kind of retreating around the world and pulling back and not being a leader, Japan has stepped forward in a very impressive way. And I really am grateful that Prime Minister Abe has been willing to be a leader. You know, this hasn't always been the case. You know, for so many years, in my experience, um, you know, Japan wanted to stay behind, in the shadow of, of America and you know, look out around the edges, but not get out itself. That's changed. And very fortunately for us, because we have, uh, we have a government in Japan that is willing to lead and carry the flag of free enterprise and democracy and rule of law, you know, around the world. And it's at a time when, sadly, America is not leading. Uh, Japan is. And it's a very important thing. And what's important you're going to be hearing today is, you know, a very important dimension of this leadership. You know, it, it um, you know, all of the complicated problems in the world are horizontal and all the governments are vertical. So if you're going to deal with substantial problems, you have to have authentic commitment to multilateral cooperation. And that's what, what JBIC and what Japan is doing. If you saw the last uh, Osaka G20, it was a masterpiece. It was a masterpiece of architecture, strategic thinking, and putting together in place a strategy for dealing with it. So it's, it's really important. Now, it's, I'd also say that this new era that we're entering into is much more about economic competition than it is about military muscle. You know, this is going to be an era of uh, competing models and who offers the best formula for the world. And I, I, Japan has done a superb job in developing the architecture. You have a strategy. We're going to hear an important part of that strategy today. So I want to say thank you for coming. This, this 
discussion today is going to be is far more important than you realize. And uh, I'm very grateful that you're willing to do it with us here at CSIS. So could I ask you with your very warm applause to welcome the, the president of JBIC, Maeda-san. Please come up here. Thank you, Dr. Hamre. It's a very kind introduction. It's my great honor and pleasure to return to my second hometown in Washington, D.C., and uh, gives, uh, some, give you uh, some remarks and distinguish the audiences uh, in, at CSIS. It's very prestigious. Thank you so much. Uh, let me uh, try that what, do we, uh, what we are doing uh, uh, under the concept of the free and open in the Pacific. As uh, Dr. Hamre referred to that, this concept was introduced and proclaimed by, by our Prime Minister Shinzo Abe uh, in uh, uh, 2017, uh, first, three in a, uh, uh, first summit meeting with uh, President John Trump of the United States. And uh, a key uh, component of this uh, free and open Indo-Pacific uh, is a, um, uh, to bring stability and prosperity for the entire uh, for Indo-Pacific region. Uh, it is a quite new type uh, kind of concept because it used to be, we say that, Asian Pacific. And the Indian Ocean is a, it's just a, a, a west side of the Marcus Strait and they to be a, a leech to the Middle East and Africa. So in some sense, uh, this is a, a, some counter proposal to Chinese Belt and Road Institute. But in my view, it's a different because in my view, the Chinese Belt and Road Initiative is not initiative, no plan, no program. This is a political slogan because there are no de clear definition. Uh, in the con on the contrary, that we and open in the Pacific uh, initiative have a very clear mandate and definition, uh, which is a of the, we have three uh, pillars on, on this uh, initiative, which is the promotion and establishment of the rule of the law and freedom of navigation and free trade. It's, it is a, a, a common the concept that the, uh, the, the Western democratic countries uh, share among us. And the pursuit of the economic prosperity and commitment of peace and stability. And this is a, a clear rule we need to uh, abide by. And uh, uh, I pro propose uh, under this the concept the five, five conditions of our platform. One is the transparency, two, inclusiveness, three, viability of the project, four, the sustainability of the debt of host countries, and finally, that rule of the law. Uh, this is very important because uh, now the, we, I see that this is an era of geopolitics. And uh, I said China, Chinese Belton Dole Initiative used to be, I supported, suppose that it be uh, being uh, strengthening connectivity from the uh, eastern uh, side of the Eurasian continent, which is uh, in China through Central Asia uh, countries and to uh, Europe, Middle East, and Africa. And uh, uh, now, what happened is that the uh, Belt and Road is everywhere. In a country like Latin America, for example, they said that it's a Belt and Road in Africa, same thing. 
but I don't know that what's the exact the definition of the Belt and Road Initiative. That's, that's why uh, the Prime Minister Shinzo Abe uh, decided to make some engagement. Only through engagement we can uh, understand what the China is trying to do. So in October last year, uh, Prime Minister Shinzo Abe uh, took the big delegation of both private and public to Beijing and they co-host the event of the uh, Japan-China cooperation in third country's market. In the uh, Great Hall of the People in Beijing, the big, big gathering, and uh, both parties uh, signed more than 50 uh, documents. Normally it's a memorandum of understanding type of not really binding the uh, papers. And we also signed a memorandum of understanding with the China Development Bank. Uh, it's a second memorandum of understanding with Chinese, and I propose to the same uh, conditions uh, for our cooperation. Otherwise, uh, China, uh, if China does not accept, we cannot uh, cooperate. And uh, uh, eventually, Ch uh, China Development Bank, and the, also that supported by the uh, uh, State Planning Council of China, accepted uh, all five conditions. Therefore, that we have now started cooperation with China Development Bank in a tangible project in, in Thailand. On the uh, free and open Pacific side, we signed a, a trilateral MOU. Originally, that we signed MOU with uh, OPIC um, uh, in 2017, and then signed again in 2018. Last, uh, July of last year, the U.S. Chamber of Commerce hosted the event of Indo-Pacific Business Forum in Washington, D.C. I participated as a member, uh, as a panelist. Uh, where the Secretary of uh, uh, State, uh, Mark Pompeo, uh, clearly proclaimed a new commitment uh, by the United States government for free and open in the Pacific region, in, in particular in the digital economy and energy security and infrastructure. And also I participated in the panel discussion with a then OPIC President, uh, Le Washburn, and also that Australian Secretary uh, of Affairs of the Embassy here, and we discussed this. And then after that, we uh, made a press release about this uh, trilateral partnership. And he, uh, also uh, in 2018, uh, during the visit of the U.S. Vice President Mark Pence, we signed an additional uh, memorandum of understanding. In Tokyo, in my office, uh, then the U.S. Ambassador to Japan, uh, Bill Haggerty, and the Australian Ambassador to Japan, Richard Court, and myself, and the three of us signed a memorandum of cooperation. And uh, we are, I am a deal maker, so that's uh, just signing a MMOU is, uh, is, is not meaningful. Therefore, that we made we make, make tangible case, and uh, we, uh, JB created the special task force and, uh, uh, for this free and open in the Pacific. And uh, also, uh, I retained a former Vice Minister of, of, for International Affairs, Meti Yanase, Tadao Yanase, as my senior advisor, and to give him the role of leading this uh, uh, task force. And we jointly uh, sent a mission to the country like Papua New Guinea, Palau, and also Indonesia. In Palau, we have a tangible project. Uh, it's a telecommunication uh, submarine cable which to be a, a subset, subset of the submarine cable uh, from Singapore to be connected to the western, west coast of the United States. 
And the uh, Australians very keen on the, the working on this project. And the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade of, of Australia, Secretary Francis Adamson, as he has the wide range of uh, knowledge about this region. And also the uh, Australian uh, also transformed their uh, entity like uh, EFIC, Export Finance Insurance Corporation, to be more proactive and also gives them more budget for them. For them. And uh, uh, JBIC, we have a, a long understanding is roughly $160 billion. Uh, we uh, made loans in 11 different currencies. And we also have a wide variety of the financial product, not just only debt financing, but also the guarantee of bond, the guarantee of loan, and also uh, equity investment. We have a wide uh, range of the financial product. And I, uh, we are now, in my, in my uh, discussion with uh, OPIC now, uh, uh, USDFC, uh, US side have some uh, statutory constraint. Uh, OPIC by statute is, is not able to support uh, the state-owned enterprises. But uh, country like Papua New Guinea, without involvement of state-owned enterprise, it is not possible to materialize the project. Therefore, that we, I, I decided that the OPIC to be uh, also maybe a Treasury Department or State Department, the White House, that we need to have allow OPIC or now DFC to make more flexible interpretation of the statute. And they, they need some qualification uh, of the state-owned enterprise uh, to be eligible for his support. I agree. Therefore, that we are now, by project by project, uh, we are now doing uh, uh, very much the uh, tangible manner. And one more thing that I'd like to uh, the, uh, add is that the treatment of Taiwan. I paid a visit to Taipei and had a meeting privately, by the way, privately. Actually, I, not, I was not able to do it. Privately, I had a meeting, private meeting with the National Security Advisor of Taiwan and also the Foreign Minister of Taiwan. They have already engaged by transaction by transaction with OPIC a year ago, and uh, they are very uh, knowledgeable. And I reported back to the Prime Minister and how the, uh, discuss with them on how to treat the uh, Taiwan. Obviously, uh, we cannot invite Taiwan as official partner. However, by transaction by transaction, we may invite them if, we, uh, if it is appropriate, then project by project. That's a, that's a, a, a answer and confirmed by the Office of Prime Minister. So now, uh, what's happened in the Pacific Island, uh, like compact uh, uh, countries, and the uh, leaders of the compact countries in Micronesia and so on, paid a visit to Washington, D.C. and to meet uh, President Trump. And now this September of this year, uh, two uh, small island countries in the Pacific Island, which is uh, Kiribati and Somo Islands, undercut the diplomatic, uh, diplomatic tie with Taiwan, and they uh, start tie with uh, mainland China. That is uh, obviously that's endorsed by the Chinese government. So that uh, uh, we need to be paying due attention to what they are doing right now. And also, I briefly touch upon that uh, assault on the AIB. I had a meeting uh, with the AIB's uh, President Jiren uh, Chin a couple of times, and uh, I made a very uh, straightforward question to him. You know, I visited visit to the uh, 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 head office of, of, of AIB in Beijing. It's a, it's a very fancy 
head office. However, and it's just across the street of the People Bank of China. However, it's almost empty, nobody there. And only 100 uh, staffers. Therefore, that, uh, most of their financial product is in co-financing with World Bank and, and ADB. But they have some independent, financial, separate independent financial aid to some countries like the state of Oman. And the uh, state of Oman is, a, uh, from national security point of view, uh, in the uh, Middle East, it's very important. This is uh, outside the uh, uh, Hormuz Strait and also very close to the uh, Horn of Africa. And therefore, that's, uh, uh, we also, that Japan is, uh, dispatched the uh, safe defense the maritime forces to, uh, to anti-piracy uh, the uh, activities. And a, a project in Port of Dukum, which is outside the state of, of uh, Hormuz, we provide the financing to, the, to, uh, to uh, fabric this uh, port facility many years ago, I mean 16 to 17 years ago. Therefore, that's, I understand that the, how critical this uh, location of the, of, of the port. The AIB provided financing independently to this project, uh, to the project of the port facility of Tukum. And I, uh, but now, uh, China recognized that now some of these ideas be uh, already criticized by the uh, international community. What happened to Sri Lanka, port of Hambatota? The, um, the Export Import Bank of China provided financing to dollar-based financing to not only MNB uh, to uh, uh, Sri Lanka. But Sri Lanka was not able to pay back. So what's happened is that they uh, uh, switched the, uh, the uh, contract to the 99 years leasing contract of the piece of land, which is very similar, almost the same that the British Empire did uh, to Hong Kong in 150 years ago. That, uh, uh, that, there's some resemblance. And uh, also that China did in the, uh, Ecuador, and it's a very similar thing. Therefore, that now, they are start beginning understanding that the, uh, their uh, debt sustainability is a, a really important issue for the international community. And uh, that's why that we are working with China Development Bank under five condition in a project in Thailand, which is a leveling project, total distance in 220 kilometers uh, to link the three airports from Bangkok and the southeast part of the, uh, Thailand, which is a core project in the Eastern Economic Corridor uh, in Thai government. Last year, in June of 2018, I was privately invited by uh, Thai Prime Minister uh, Prayut to the Greater Mekong Summit. And I, um, I uh, had a very uh, private uh, discussion with the uh, leaders like uh, Gwen Son Phuc of the Prime Minister of Vietnam and Hun Sen of the Prime Minister of uh, Cambodia and so on. And all of them said that we need both China and Japan. That's already introduced this anecdote in, a, in, a, in my panel in the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. Uh, this is true, uh, but they do not say that we need the United States. So it means that the, uh, Japan can, be a, uh, can play a role of intermediary between uh, them and the United States. So we understand that how you, uh, they ex expect uh, us to play. So uh, we are doing that way, so that uh, from the beginning, I mean, that uh, we have been engaged the project from the scratch and to make the project bankable. We cover the expense of the feasibility study uh, as a free of charge. This is what we're doing right now. 
And uh, we are now, uh, as Dr. Hammer said, that we, we uh, uh, recognize that the law to play, uh, play a leading role of three tri tri trilateral the, uh, partnerships. And uh, uh, this is a very important because uh, I think that it's now in the year of 2019, 20, 21, it's a very narrow window opportunity because of US-China conflict. Uh, now, uh, Chinese are trying to change uh, some behavior. And I, uh, this year, uh, uh, former uh, governor of People Bank of China, Zhou Saochun, came to my office. I hosted dinner for him by, by inviting uh, leaders of the Japanese financial sectors. And uh, he said uh, almost publicly that we need to, to promote the China-Japan financial cooperation. And we uh, simultaneously listed the uh, ETF and both Tokyo Stock Exchange and the Shanghai Stock Exchange. Uh, uh, it's the first time for foreign uh, Japanese security companies, which is Nomura, received a license of, of, of uh, uh, the activities in China uh, as the majority shareholder of joint venture with the Chinese partner. So this is a, uh, some of the evidence that China is trying to change the course. And in Bangkok, by the way, I found that uh, uh, you know, CDB's China Development Bank is practice. And uh, this, uh, they also try to accommodate the uh, international practices. But uh, still some gap. But they're, they're serious. Therefore, it's a good thing. So uh, therefore, that we try to keep this uh, uh, kind of relation with the China Development Bank. And uh, uh, we try to change the behavior to be more um, consistent with the international standards. So this is a very quick remarks, uh, which I try to uh, share with all of you. And then uh, I am delighted to have a dialogue with my dear friend, Dr. Michael Green. Thank you so much. such a rich, rich conversation. As John Hamry said, the world's problems are horizontal and the world's bureaucracies are, are vertical. JBIC is one of the few uh, organizations in the world that's, that's mostly horizontal, that, 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 that deals with strategic questions. Um, it helps to have money, <laughs> which JBIC, of course, <laughs> has. But as you can hear uh, from Midasan, JBIC's um, reach is truly strategic. And Maida Hassan, as many of you may know, is not only a close advisor to Prime Minister Abe, um, he may be one of the only people in Japan who was also a close advisor to the previous government <laughs> and then the government before that. So um, he is uh, uh, part of the reason for the consistency and longevity in Japan's strategy. Um, let me uh, also thank Maida Hassan. We're going to have, uh, starting in January, a senior uh, official from JPEG. Um, embedded at CSIS uh, to work on free and open Indo-Pacific strategy uh, with a particular focus on infrastructure and financing, but, but looking at it comprehensively. And we'll invite all of you to, to, to join in that dialogue in the coming year. Um, let, let me first ask you about geography. 
you know, the, the, the Belt and Road is defined by Beijing endlessly. There's, there's an Arctic Belt and Road, there's an Outer Space Beltic ro Belt and Road. <laughs> um, the U.S. free and open Indo-Pacific strategy pretty much corresponds to Indo-PACOM. <laughs> how do you, geographically, just to begin, how do you define FOIP at JBIC? How far does it go? Well, originally that concept started from the uh, strength and connectivity uh, between uh, free Asian Pacific and Indo-Pacific, Indo-Indian uh, uh, Ocean. So it means that to uh, to avoid a choke point, which is the Strait of Malacca, and also to to reach Middle East and Africa. Therefore, that uh, uh, you know, also the Pacific Rim is very broad. For example, that the uh, uh, west coast of, of, of United States and Canada and also in some Latin American countries and Western Pacific Rim, the part of that. Mm -hmm. and therefore, that uh, we are doing uh, with the uh, uh, counterpart of the United States uh, uh, in the project in, the, in Latin as well. So that uh, uh, obviously, but it is not included a country like Russia mm -hmm. or, uh, or the inland. So it's a kind of a maritime countries normally. Therefore, that's a target is like a country like Indonesia, and also uh, we need a uh, we need to have some centrality and solidarity of ASEAN countries. So uh, we also uh, try to uh, send some messages that you your countries are prioritized for free and open, but not limited to them. So that uh, some countries in Africa, Latin America could be included if uh, they are agreed on the five conditions I referred to. So it's flexible. Flexible. Um, not, uh, not as flexible as China's Belt and Road, but more <laughs> flexible than the American uh, bureaucratic definition. Your comments on, on China were fascinating. One of the uh, questions now is the U.S. Uh, engages in a much more strategically competitive relationship with China is whether U.S. policies or policies with friends and allies can shape Chinese behavior. Can we get China to behave in a more benign way? And it seems to me surveying Chinese economic, foreign, and security policy, uh, the kind of test case for that in many ways is what you're doing. It's, it's uh, whether or not JBIC's um, dialogue with uh, China Development Bank um, on infrastructure might change the way China does Belt and Road. And um, I, I, after you met with uh, Chinese counterparts, um, China announced the second Belt and Road Forum, BARF2, as it's known. Um, and that the theme would be quality infrastructure, which is really interesting because that, of course, is a theme Japan <laughs> introduced, uh, in some ways, I think, to put pressure on China. So how would you assess things? Is China's agreement to your five conditions just lip service? Uh, is this just PR? Or do you think there's a real chance that we can um, have an influence on how China does infrastructure investment and financing? Well, it's a big, good question, and also a tough question. It, um, my sense is a little bit early mm -hmm. to make a judgment, and we have to uh, monitor what they are doing. But what uh, we found through this engagement with, Ch with China development banks are a couple of things. Let me share. One is that in a, in a critical point, a CDB is not able to make an own decision without consultation uh, with a, uh, a body like uh, NDRC. Mm -hmm. So that. Uh, they try to be very, very cautious, and they don't want to uh, have a responsibility on decision making. And also, the CDBs, the uh, top leaders, have been 
changed most recently because of the f former one with Nessa who was indicted mm -hmm. because of a scandal. Mm -hmm. So they are now more and more reluctant and cautious to make a judgment by themselves. Everything is now cons consulted with the uh, MDLC. That's what, what happened. Yeah. Secondly, uh, we found uh, some of the uh, articles uh, of the own agreement of their use. Uh, some of them are uh, not consistent with their global standards. Mm -hmm. For example, that the, uh, they are encouraging be consistent with the Chinese procurement guideline. Uh, this is a uh, is it not global standard. So we need to pay respect to the uh, procurement standard of host countries normally. So therefore, that uh, uh, this is a different. But now they are t uh, now beginning of understanding what's a, what's a matter. But also that you said refer to the quality infrastructure. Uh, it's a, uh, introduced by originally that obviously Prime Minister Shinzo Abe. The president she referred to quality infrastructure in this uh, second uh, Bretton Road conference in Beijing six times. But they, uh, to me, uh, but quote, the, uh, China may not understand the uh, clear definition of what, what the law of, of uh, what the meanings of uh, quality infrastructure. It does not uh, only, it does not mean only that the uh, physical quality mm -hmm. infrastructure. It's a, in that uh, we need to be uh, consistent with a, uh, agenda like climate change, more environmental friendly in ESG is a part of quality infrastructure, and most uh, um, uh, energy efficiency is also part of quality infrastructure. Therefore, that, uh, they do not understand fully yet. Mm. yet. Mm. And, and also that quality infrastructure is a, a, a very much a meaning of, or to, uh, to give some guidance towards a, for the developing countries. Uh, for example, that uh, uh, in May of this year, I paid a visit to Hanoi and a meeting with a Prime Minister Gwen Suan Fuku of Vietnam. Uh, we received the many applications of coal fire apartments. And the OECD uh, allows us to make uh, financing if, if the technology is, a, is a, uh, better than ultra supercritical technology. However, I said to Prime Minister Fuku, uh, it takes a long time, maybe average eight to nine years to materialize from, from receiving the request and the materializing project. Therefore, if you, uh, we, I, we accept uh, this uh, ultra supercritical coal fire plant now, it means that it binds the future. Mm. So uh, technology is now uh, advancing. So that uh, I said, I, I, uh, I'm sorry, but I, I, I'd have to stop the receiving application coal fire power plants now. Mm. And then, mm. but if you, Vietnamese Prime Minister, accept to uh, uh, accommodate the better technology, better, uh, less uh, burden on the environment, like a coal gasification, even if you use a coal, coal gasification or uh, carbon capture and storage and so on, we can support. Mm -hmm. So this is a quality infrastructure. Mm -hmm. This is a, uh, uh, very much consistent with the advancement of progress of technology. That's not necessarily what President Xi Jinping means. No, uh, I, I remember so. in 2005, oh. I was in the White House and uh, Deputy Secretary of State Bob Zelik gave his famous speech calling on China to be a responsible stakeholder. And a few months later, Hu Jintao came to Washington and he gave a speech and he said, 12 times, China is a responsible stakeholder. <laughs> and then it was just lip service. But this might be different because <clears throat> I would imagine that your counterparts in China Development Bank, as professionals and as bankers and as economists, 
worry about um, the moral hazard, worry about um, how their money is spent, worry about, you know, debt traps are bad for the lenders too, uh, at least in, in economic terms. Strategically, there are advantages to China perhaps, but there are a lot of um, flaws I'm sure that Chinese bankers see. That, do you find that within the Chinese system, the political leaders are the more reluctant, but your counterparts within the banks generally understand what you're talking about? Is that how you would describe it? Well, or is it, uh, yeah. You know, they, you know, there's some difference between exporting per bank and the China development bank. Well, uh, exporting per bank is more closer to mm. to Chinese government. They, uh, it's a matter of the uh, degree, but the China development bank, bank, the officials try to be uh, uh, part of the uh, banking society uh, in in the global banking society world. But the uh, you know, if some of the order from the top. Mm-hmm. There's no way that they they have to to obey mm-hmm. that order. Yeah. Therefore, what they uh, you know, for example, that therefore that these banks still con- continue to uh, to uh, support the project in Venezuela. Venezuela is not able to pay back, so we have the kind of uh, uh, you know the uh, kind of struggling asset yeah. in Vietnam. So no way that they, we cannot make loan anymore, but they continue to make loan. Mm-hmm. So that this is a, a totally different from the uh, a, a common understanding mm. of the uh, community, global community. So which is easier to work with, the China Development Bank or OPEC? Don't answer that. <laughs> 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 I hear, I think Matt Goodman also hears from friends of ours in private equity, uh, a lot of interest in this new uh, US, Japan and Australia um, memorandum of cooperation. Um, can you tell us the state of affairs? Yes, mm-hmm. and I, I, uh, before coming to Washington, D.C., I, was, I stayed in New York City. I had a, a couple of meetings with a private equity guys like uh, KKR mm-hmm. and uh, BlackRock. And uh, the, I had a meeting one by one with uh, Mr. Henry Krabis of, uh, of KKR, and he said that KKR's commitment is the long t- as a long-term investor. It may include uh, infrastructure and also in BlackRock, they are now uh, doing a lot in the renewable energy mm-hmm. and, and uh, it's like uh, wind power and and, uh, and solar panel and in globally. But main target is still in the U.S. and Europe, but they try to be uh, advanced to the uh, new emerging mm-hmm. area like uh, Indo-Pacific region, they say. And also that uh, uh, KKL said that we. We need. Uh, we think that the Japan as a hub uh, of the uh, international financing in Asia and the Pacific, and so that the uh, despite these kind of uh, um, problems we face, challenges like uh, the senior society and, and aging society, and uh, population is declining. However, that we we need to uh, we need to give some solutions. So Japan is a maybe first country to give some solutions to those problems. Mm-hmm. Probably China may face the same challenges in a couple years later, mm-hmm. right? So that therefore that uh, I feel that now those private equity industry in the United States is now shifting the focus, not just on the U.S. and European market, on also that market like Indo-Pacific. My understanding is a lot of the projects that you're discussing with the China Development Bank and also other projects you're discussing with uh, OPEC and with Australia are, tend to be in energy, transportation, infrastructure, railroads, things like that. But you mentioned earlier that Yanase-san of METI is now <laughs> advising you on FOIP. 
Yana Sassan is also advising the government on 5G. Is 5G on your radar? <laughs> are you thinking about that? Because the digital belt and road the Chinese are offering, uh, critics would say, and I would agree, involves a lot of um, you know, three, four-year interest-free loans, um, you know, predatory uh, dumping and uh, price cuts and other things to create monopolistic positions. Um, and for a lot of developing countries, whatever uh, 5G system the US, Japan, or Europe come up with is going to be expensive. Uh, so it's strategically maybe even more important than railroads and energy uh, and bridges. Is it on your radar? Yes. Uh, I was in Stockholm uh, a month ago, and I, I found that they face the same you know, uh, problem or question, how to deal with the Huawei, mm -hmm. include or exclude. So that uh, views of Nokia, for example, uh, those, those guys are very important to the, uh, this, on this question. Our, uh, our position is very clear right now. So we are now, uh, uh, not explicitly, we, we, we do not say that we exclude Huawei and some, some, such a specific company. But uh, the de facto basis, uh, we are very much careful, mm -hmm. very careful. And I, also that uh, uh, year of 2019, 20, 21, this is a, very much a uh, very critical moment and a possibly narrow window of opportunity yeah. to catch up the uh, Huawei and others <coughs> and in, in a more competitive manner. But uh, uh, I'm afraid that the, uh, now, because of U.S.-China conflict, China is uh, uh, more badly affected by the conflict than the United States uh, this year or next year. But uh, uh, China tried to change its supply chain probably in a, uh, four or five years, they may catch up. Mm -hmm. That's the, therefore, that, uh, uh, my sense is that uh, it is not able to contain China. Right. It's not practical. Therefore, that uh, we, we uh, as the international community, as allies, that U.S. needs Japan, U.S. needs Europe as a very robust, very strong partner, and uh, to, be, uh, to foster that platform, that's very important. Mm -hmm. And then China may, may change their behavior. Otherwise, they will not. That's, they, uh, that's, that's my, my point. Let me open it up a bit. Um, uh, ask my colleague, uh, Matt Goodman, who works a lot on infrastructure and economic issues. If you want to ask the first question, you just, um, uh, there are many, many angles Matt could bring to Thank, this. But. Thanks so much. Um, and good to see you again, Maeda san um, really interesting comments. Can I ask a sort of two questions? First, a practical question. When you sign an MOU with other entities, and you, how do you operationalize your cooperation? Because BIC's mandate is to promote, frankly, Japanese business and Japanese exports, and the USDFCs is to promote. How do you actually operationally come together and, and enable the two entities to, to work, do they work in parallel on different things or do they overcome that basic um, set of um, objectives and, and the mission of each entity in order to be able to do it? That's a sort of practical question because I genuinely don't understand how, how that works. Um, the broader question is, some critics here of the U.S. strategy that the free and open economic 
say that, um, and the infrastructure piece in, in particular, that we're putting a lot of chips on the USDFC, the new um, Development Finance Corporation, but that that's, while necessary, far from sufficient our engagement in this, um, in this um, effort. So what else, do you, from your perspective, do you think the United States ought to be doing and bringing to the table beyond the DFC uh, tool? Thank you, Matt. It's a very, very good question. Now, on the first question, very practical question. Uh, you know, created the task force jointly, and by in, in the working level of people, the construction or not. As a, and now DFC yet uh, is to make financing to the state on Less than 50 percent, uh, we may uh, qualify as a as a, a eligible uh, borrower uh, of this. And also, uh, we need some of devices like to make some of a special purpose vehicle. And uh, on sovereign side, we uh, JBIC will support. In private side, support by the DFC. That kind of uh, divisional labor can be uh, uh, considered. And uh, uh, on the Australian side, the Australian has um, um, uh, asset uh, products of the grant. Uh, therefore, that uh, 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 we can make use of this Australian piece as well. And most uh, importantly, we need a, uh, uh, a cooperation, collaboration between the private sector uh, uh, from Japan and the United States and if the uh, company like GE or other American companies uh, work together with the Japanese companies, it's much easier for us to, to accommodate. So uh, we are now encouraging that, for example, in Papua New Guinea, uh, we have trading companies, but uh, out of the uh, eight or nine big trading companies, only one company has an office in Port Moresby. Mm -hmm. It is Sojitsu Corporation. So that I encourage the uh, other uh, bigger the companies to uh, make some of the offers in the Adobe right now so that the couple uh, start creating the office and also they try to gather information, relevant information. So that's the, uh, our proactive engagements from the scratch of a project. Uh, this is makes the project bankable and the, uh, sharing uh, also that's the uh, uh, mitigating some of uh, the uh, constraints they have, and also the human rights issue as well. That we are, our uh, uh, condition is not so strict than the United States. Uh, therefore, that uh, uh, also carbon footprint and so on. These are some constraints from the US side. We understand. So, uh, we try to overcome through uh, this constraint with uh, uh, discussion or almost. Uh, uh, the, every every uh, day we have keeps in con uh, through the the email and so on. So that's the video conference and so on. So that's uh, that's what happened right now. So that it's the first time we have to to send dispatch mission jointly. Mm -hmm. We did already. So that's a, a question. The second uh, one is a 
um, is the most uh, uh, more tougher uh, question. But I, um, I understand some question, but um, uh, but we understand. Uh, I remember understanding that we understand that we try to foster the uh, common asset, global common asset in in the Pacific. And uh, we, this is not easy piece, you know. And, and for, example, for example, that uh, used, previously we worked on some of we give some additionality on ASEAN, ASEAN plus something, ASEAN plus. But uh, this is a di it's different approach, different approach. Therefore, that uh, this is a, a new approach. Therefore, that we need to declare. Uh, Many of some of the problem, I understand it, but uh, step by step um, through our engagement, uh, we may be able to uh, find a better truck. I'm going to uh, call on one more CSIS colleague and then open it up. So if you're thinking of asking a question, you can get your thoughts together. I'll, I'll call on Errol Yakov from the Development and Prosperity Program at CSIS. Excellent. Thanks, Dr. Green, and, and thanks for convening this really important um, event. Thank you. It's an honor to have you back at CSIS. Uh, I feel like DC is not only your second home, but maybe CSIS is your second Thank home. Thank you. <laughs> so, um, I wanted to comment just very briefly on your characterization of the, of the BRI. I, I completely agree that it's a compelling marketing vision, maybe even a brand, although the product is a little bit unclear. Um, and so I, I really appreciated your presentation of that. I wanted to build on, on my colleague Matt's point about the DFC and, and OPIC. Uh, I really liked how you said, MOUs are fine, but I'm a deal maker. Can you paint a, a vision of what actually that type of deal making looks like with the DFC, let's say two years from now? The, the DFC, if it ever launches, and I'm really glad that you met Adam yesterday, I, I think that there's a lot of uh, optimism about if the DFC can ever get approved finally by uh, as part of the budget process, that, that this will be a, a really force uh, for good in the world. I agree with Dr. Green that maybe it's not the transformative alternative to BRI in and of itself. Um, but, but I think it does have new capabilities and new tools and new abilities to co-finance with the JVICs of the world that they didn't have before. They now have equity authority. They do have um, some soft money for project preparation like the, uh, the Australians. So, if you could paint a vision of what that that looks like maybe two years from now. And a quick second question is, oh, the DFC is being asked to do more in fragile states and places that maybe offer slightly greater risk, slightly lower return. And so if, does JBIC have a, a particular approach, uh, perhaps with the DFC or separate uh, with regards to fragile states? Thank you. Yeah, thank you. And our first question also, leading uh, the second question to Matt, that uh, uh, we need to observe their performance more of DSC. And uh, uh, for example, to that question, I refer to that the, uh, their constraint about the state-owned enterprise. I uh, asserted to uh, the President Lee Washburn and the David Bohesian that they did not respond. Right? So that it, I, I started many, uh, more than uh, 18 months ago. But not, so far, nothing happened. Therefore, that the, but Adam understood it that he he query said that we need to change this, 
uh, we start a, a, some of a uh, consultation with the other parts of the executive branches, like Treasury and State and so on, so that uh, we uh, see the performance. Also, that we offer some devices to uh, relax the, the, the guidance, guidelines. And for example, we take uh, taking a, a, a piece of the sovereign, more sovereign type uh, product, and they uh, push the more private to the, uh, the DFC side. That can be some, some division of labor uh, can be possible. Um, uh, but uh, this is uh, still we need to have to apply to the tangible cases, not only conceptual. As I said, as a dream maker, means that we need to engage. The, in the project and the state stakeholder from scratch. It takes time and it, it, it takes cost. In the JBIC, by the way, we have the uh, two sep separate accounts. <coughs> Most recently, uh, a Japanese diet accepted to create a special operation account, which uh, enabled JBIC to take more risk. Like, well, and also, we, uh, by strategy, we, we need to define that the risk category which we take under this uh, uh, special operation account, like a sovereign, uh, non-investment grade sovereign, like uh, Argentina, for example, or, or, or Iraq. We did not do that. I don't want to. But, uh, and also the sub-sovereign, like a uh, sub-sovereign risk of the uh, uh, province or government, municipality, and so on. And three, and most recent one, is a uh, technology and commercialization risk. If even if the level level is a proven technology, but not fully commercial yet, so that it, uh, normally private sector will not make any financing to such a such that, such a uh, uh, technology. Therefore, that we uh, give some uh, bridging operation uh, through this special pressure account, so that probably uh, uh, because we are front runner on this uh, so-called development financing institution, Europeans are trying the same thing in the World Bank meeting here, and the European Investment Bank. European uh, policymakers to, to strengthen EIB and maybe a merger between EIB and the EBRD. It's kind of some, some sort of agenda is now going on. I don't know. I don't think that it can happen. But anyway, that I also have the, uh, some relationship with the, uh, EIB. And, and, and key is that as a uh, uh, long-term investor, we uh, uh, share the common agenda, like the removes of the plastic waste from ocean, right, from issue. EIB is very keen. We are trying to do the same thing. We uh, encourage new technology to make solution for that removal of the waste, uh, plastic waste uh, from, from ocean. This is a, a, a also quality infrastructure. Excellent. Floor is open. Uh, if you have a question, raise your hand. We have a mic for you. Uh, uh, yeah, please. Ah, yes, uh, my name is Takahashi from NEC. And uh, thank you very much for uh, a uh, very uh, insightful discussion this morning, and uh, thank you very much also for uh, your leadership in uh, uh, private-public uh, partnership for uh, U.S.-Japan cooperation in that region. Uh, my question is uh, on uh, digital infrastructure, and you have already mentioned uh, uh, submarine cable and uh, 5G, but my question is uh, about uh, smart city uh, programs, and uh, uh, for one of the you know, BRI by China, also, uh, I understand include the uh, smart city, but uh, uh, one of the concerns is under the name of uh, smart city, uh, they might uh, export their surveillance uh, system to, uh, to that region, and particularly it's a concern uh, if they do that with the authoritarian regime, 
uh, it's a threat to the democracy. So, um, but the, in that area, I think there's a lot that uh, technology companies of US and Japan can cooperate and, and create the system that uh, respect the democracy and uh, privacy and the human rights. So if I'd like, to, uh, I'm interested in if you have some plans or thoughts in the area. Thank you. Well, thank you for the question, but especially smart city, uh, so far, to be frank with you, we have not uh, found yet appropriate project in, this, in the past region uh, in a smart city project. But JBIC, we have the uh, criteria of definition of, of, uh, of smart city. It, it, the key point is that to improve quality of life of the residents. That's a key. And we make a lot of surveillance study in uh, many uh, uh, so-called smart cities world. And uh, I think the model, the uh, better model in the, in the country like Sweden and Denmark, and a uh, kind of uh, community is building, not just only that residents, but also that municipal government and the uh, local authority and the grab a company like uh, Ericsson and Nokia and so on. These are uh, also a part of their, their solution. And also they uh, evolving. So they, for example, that the best, one of the best smart city in the world in, the, uh, in, the, uh, uh, in uh, Sweden, uh, the Loya port of smart city in Sweden, and they started in, in 1990s. And uh, the, uh, they already established some of intercourse among those stakeholders. So that this is the deal. So that we understand that quality of, uh, quality of life, improving quality of life. But on the other hand, Chinese case, for example, I pay the bill to so-called smart city of China. It means that they're all digital <coughs> and uh, very uh, close to the concept of the e-government. You know, therefore, that uh, your concern, your your uh, concern is very relevant. After uh, now, we are now uh, required to uh, fingerprints or all ten fingers on the surveillance camera. There are surveillance camera everywhere. Uh, therefore, that. Uh, uh, this is very carefully that we now define very carefully. But digital one is like uh, Secretary Pompeo said: this digital economy, digital is that the key component of free and open in the Pacific Peninsula. Excellent. Yes, please. Well, thank you for your. Thank you for your uh, insightful speech today. Uh, my name is Zhang Ho Li. I'm from South China Morning Post. You said earlier that you can, uh, you actually plan to invite Taiwan to the Indo-Pacific strategy, but you can't do that now. Um, but in the future, you said you may invite them by project by project. What are some of the projects you may cooperate with Taipei uh, within the framework of Indo-Pacific strategy? And also, have you actually discussed this with the officials in Taipei, or is it more like uh, Tokyo's long-term objective in the future. Thank you. Thank, thank you uh, question. That by transaction to investment means that also we may invite China. Uh, they, if we, uh, China agreed with all five conditions, uh, this is an example that we're already doing with the China Development Bank in Taiwan. Taiwan case, in Taiwan, we do not have a diplomatic tie with Taiwan. Therefore, um, we cannot invite them as a country officially as a partner of a free and open in the Pacific. However, transaction transaction means that it's a private driven. Therefore, that if uh, there's many cases, even Chinese are also cooperating with Taiwan uh, entity, 
as well. It's a, a mild view that Taiwan economy and mainland economy of uh, China is very much integrated already. And, and therefore, that is a matter from the economic point of view, this make, makes sense. So that is a, uh, we do not have a, any uh, political uh, the, uh, implementa uh, implication on it. It's because Taiwan already have the, uh, some tie with the OPIC a, a year ahead of us, a year ahead of us. Therefore, that uh, uh, they know very knowledgeable about what's, what's going on in a uh, public uh, small island countries like you know like Marshall and, and Solomon and so on. So therefore, that uh, if I said if it's, if it is appropriate, I I, I we would uh, uh, invite them as a uh, uh, transaction by transaction by transaction. So as you can see, uh, Midasan has the most interesting job in Japan. <laughs> Um, the geographic scope, the functional scope, um, political risk assessment, uh, fundamental questions of geopolitics. If we had more time, Midasan could hold forth on Islamic financing, which he's a specialist on, uh, the Russian Far East, um, uh, uh, even, um, uh, I think, uh, bullet trains in Texas and California. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, but we're out of time, I'm sorry to say. So he has a bit here for the bank and fund meetings. A lot of important coordination to do with the administration. We need to let him go. But first, let's thank him very much for his terrific presentation. Thank you. Thank you.